equality does not mean anyone else's oppression. It means equality. I don't know how, how simpler, you know, how we can simplify that. Hey everyone, I'm Uswa. And I'm Yasmin. Welcome to Inner Work Ally Squared's official podcast where we learn how to better practice allyship. Today we're going to be talking about Karen culture. We prefaced this a little beforehand and by the way this is our first episode of 2021 so that's super exciting. It is. Happy New Year everyone. Yeah hopefully this one's better than 2020. <laughs> that was a little rough. It was like a real harsh speed bump. Yeah. But I think we're bigger and better this year. Absolutely. I'm manifesting it. Man- Manifest that. Yeah. <laughs> Just put that out there. And we're starting by talking about a big problem that emerged. Well, didn't emerge. We started talking about it more. Um, yeah, it kind of became more a popularized phenomenon, I think, in 2020. Yeah, and let's address our qualms about 2020 before we go ahead with 2021 um, by talking about Karens. Yeah. I mean, you culture. have a lot of feelings about Karens, but before we go ahead and talk about not just your experiences, but just the larger phenomenon of Karens. Um, why don't you go ahead and define Karen? Okay, so when we, what do we refer to when we say Karen? Because I feel like a lot of people have an idea of maybe what it is, and then some people know absolutely nothing about mm-hmm. when you make a joke, oh, that person's being a Karen. What does it mean? So a Karen is typically a white woman who often weaponizes her privilege and uses it against people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see tons of examples of this. I think the most popular one that people talk about a lot of the time is when you have someone that's, you know, asking to speak to the manager. For no reason. Yeah. To mm-hmm. uh, And oftentimes this is just a way of belittling minimum wage workers and oftentimes BIPOC people. Yep. Um, and... Another example would be, I feel like this is kind of what I saw the most, was um, in Central Park, um, a woman named Amy Cooper who called the police on an African-American man and said that he was threatening her life Mm -hmm. when he um, had just asked her to put her dog on a leash. Yeah, because it wasn't a leash-free zone and they were bird watching, so there's ramifications for that. Exactly. And apparently his bird watching was a great threat to her. Um, so, <laughs> so this is, these are kind of some of the more, I guess, popular examples of mm-hmm. Karen culture. Um, and then Karens often fit the stereotype of beliefs that are held by middle or upper class white women. Um, and they, you know, oftentimes we see very conservative values, mm-hmm. um, kind of a buy into right populist conspiracy theories, such as, you know, anti-vax, um, entitlement, mistrust of authority, or just like the overall belief that you know what's best for other people. Absolutely. And I think a popular misconception is the fact that Karen's like just emerged and we're here Mm -hmm. to tell you they have it. They've always been there. But um, essentially the idea of this kind of behavior um, emerged when white women during the Jim Crow era, specifically in the United States, weren't afforded the same power as white men part of the first white feminism movement. So they tried to cling to their power as hard as they could and the power they got through their race, but also through the privilege that their partners had, their husbands had. Um, So this led to white women becoming like polices into society, like social polices. So they would enforce and patronize people, especially racialized people for not doing things right. And by right, we mean 
um, complicit white. in the white, yeah, in the whiteness that was perpetuated. Um, and before this, black slaves would often get this type of woman, and at that time it was called Miss Anne, um, behind their backs. That's what they would call them. And it's the same idea as Karens, but that was the vernacular back then. And so Karens have always existed. I think they're just different names for them. Mm-hmm. So many people have had experiences with Karens. And in saying that, we do have a guest today. I love when we get to introduce guests because it's like, oh, cool. Someone also wants to talk to us. Yeah, it's, it's fun. So um, we've got Justine Yu from Living Hyphen here with us today. Mm-hmm. Um, so she is the founder and editor-in-chief of Living Hyphen, which is a community that explores what it means to live in between cultures as hyphenated Canadian. So that's, you know, saying an, an individual who calls Canada home but has roots elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that really speaks to, like, a majority population of um, Canadians. Mm -hmm. So she's an award-winning writing workshop facilitator whose work with Living Hyphen has been featured on international, national, and local media outlets. Um, And we are so happy to have you here, Justine. Hello. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. You've supported our work for many months now and we're so happy to have you in our LA squared sphere. I'm excited too. Uh, to kick off your new year. Yeah, <laughs> <know>. Exactly. <laughs> um, so there's a question we ask all of our guests when we start um, and it's really just to bring you to the space that you're in right now which is what inner work have you had to do to get yourself where you are today and you can take that in whatever way that it means to you. Yes. So for me, it has been a very long journey and one that I'm still currently on in terms of discovering, I guess, my own identity. I'm a Filipina Canadian. I was born in the Philippines and stayed there up until I was four years old and moved to Canada to Scarborough and then Markham and then now in Toronto, always around the GTA. Um, But I have always or I have been on this journey of trying to understand the complexity of what it means to live in between cultures. You know, that's why I've dedicated a lot of my time and my work into living hyphen to explore that. And a lot of that work has meant really learning about these concepts of white supremacy and colonialism and patriarchy and all of these systems of oppression that we are all born into. And so it, it's been, you know, I think a majority of my life, at least in our education system here in Canada, there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, learning in that regard. It was honestly, mm-hmm. and when I graduated from university and when I started working for different nonprofits and I've always worked in the social impact space, as I dove deeper into that world, that's when I really started learning about these concepts of anti-oppression and really having to grapple with the fact that a lot of that stuff, a lot of those systems live inside me as well. And so it, you know, it's kind of like a buzzword these days and really popular, but it's been a lot of unlearning, unlearning, you know, the white supremacy that lives in me. And we can 
that's a whole, that's a whole episode. (laughs) It's just taking, it's taken a lot and it's, you know, it's a continuous journey and something that I'm still learning about and something that I'm still unlearning about. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's all of us really. We're all just on this journey of learning and unlearning. And when you're talking about white supremacy, I feel like that really plays into what we're talking about today, which is Karen culture. Cause I think that's a large part of what is behind Karen culture. Mm -hmm. And you have had an experience that was shared in the media um, about Karen culture. And we don't want to dwell on, you know, the single experience too much because it is part of like a much larger phenomenon but it is, I think, an important question to ask, you know, how did you feel in that moment? So very, very briefly, I will just let you know that it, over the summer, I was reading in a park and was threatened to be called, a woman came by and threatened to call the police on me for quote unquote trespassing. She then, you know, I didn't move because I was well within my rights to be there. I was simply reading. Um, and when I refused to move, she then told me that, you know, can't I read English? There are signs everywhere. Go back home to China, followed by a number of other racial slurs that we won't get into. Um, but that was something that was very jarring for me. I feel like, I feel very fortunate in that I haven't experienced a lot of overtly racist encounters. You know, of course there's tons of microaggressions I can draw from, but nothing as explicit or harmful as, you know, at least physically or, you know, emotionally harmful as that, I don't know. Um, It just felt so visceral that experience, um, being threatened to be called the police on for something that I was not doing any, I was literally reading a book, you know? And so that experience felt really jarring for me and it felt, oh gosh, it, it, I wrote about this extensively when it happened because it felt like such a violence, you know? Of course I was not physically hurt in terms of, you know, no one, she did not actually come close and touch me or physically harm me in any way, but that sort of adrenaline or the anxiety or the just the confusion or the panic that I felt when this woman approached me and threatened to call the police on me was something that was so physical and so you know like my heart was racing I started questioning if I was within my rights to be in this park this is a place that I visit all of the time and yet here I was suddenly questioning my questioning my right to be there my right to belong in this place and that was something that I I don't think I ever experienced quite as viscerally before. Did you feel like there was an authority talking to you even though that person wasn't actually an authority figure? I don't know if I saw her as an authority per se. I don't want to give her that. You know, there's a part of me that's like, no, of course not. But it just, her leveraging this threat of the police, I guess maybe it's that, the police as an authority, you know, they are people who quote unquote enforce the law and quote unquote protect the people, you know, and so that was something that that scared me because I am <laughs> I am not someone who's ever had any encounters with law enforcement or the police before. And so 
just that thought, like what could happen to me? And of course, this was at a time when we are hearing so much about police brutality. You know, this happened at the height of the most recent wave of the Black Lives Matter protests and all of the murders that have been happening, not just in the States, but here in Canada as well. So of course, at some level, you know, that factored in, of course, you know, that's something that I've had to reckon with as well. The fact that I am, um, I am an Asian woman who is, I think, and I'm sure most people would perceive me as to be non-threatening. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot about how this could have unfolded differently, quite possibly unfolded differently if I were a black man, you know, someone who in our society is deemed to be or perceived as threatening even Mm -hmm. if they are not you know and so i've had to reckon with that and really reflect on that over the last few months as well and thinking about all of the different levels or nuances of oppression and and violence in our society yeah that's a lot to unpack and i was thinking about this ahead of us recording today is what is it about karen's that really like that really capture us and really shock us and put us know make fear present in our hearts to the core of them and I feel like a lot of that is this feeling of entitlement that they have like entitlement over a certain space entitlement over controlling people's lives um and also having control over systems and this entitlement is definitely mixed with privilege like you don't feel that kind of entitlement unless systems and society are designed for your benefit and you feel like that's being a you know that's being threatened in that moment To what extent do you feel like race and gender interplay with entitlement and privilege in Karen's? Without fully considering all of the other intersections of identity here, it is an incomplete fight for justice that a lot of white women have taken on. And, you know, they feel, many of these white women do feel oppressed and are oppressed. I want to be clear about that. And, you know, a lot of women, they are women who you know, get paid less, who don't have the same access to different resources in terms of childcare or feminine hygiene or all of these other things, but they are also still privileged in the sense that if, you know, we put up these hierarchies of all of these different identities, you know, right below white men are white women. And I don't know if I'm answering your question at all, but I just feel like the the lack of regard or the lack of nuance in in considering these other intersections of identity, especially race, is something that is some it's something that we need to be talking a lot more of. And I do think that it is taking up a lot more space in conversation. And, and as we see these parents, as that has become such a cultural force yeah. <laughs> this year or this last year, a lot of white women are 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 seeing it, you know, are are I guess, trying at the very least to grapple with this idea of different intersections, which is a hard one to grasp if you have never had to live it. I feel like it's a movement for white women at the intentional expense of other people who are equally a part of what feminism needs to be. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea, again, like if we go back to entitlement, is I'm entitled to control you know, and fight for my life and my rights before anyone else is. And I mean, we can take that back to history with, um, in Canada, they're the famous five, the women who got the suffragettes who got white Mm -hmm. women, the right to vote at the expense of black and indigenous women. Yeah. And so 
um, I think it's all so intertwined and you're right. You can't look at that without looking at everything else that's involved. Mm -hmm. And I will just mention there um, about the, that suffragette, suffragette movement here in Canada that those famous five, um, there are historical records of their own racism, especially yeah. in the Asian community. It's something that I actually listened to recently in another podcast called The Secret Life of Canada, mm-hmm. where they discuss that. And again, it was, you know, getting the right to vote for white women exclusively at the expense of all of these other women of different, you know, religious, ethnic, or indigenous backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, so my mom is white and my dad is Pakistani. So I feel like as I grow and learn more, I bring my mom along <laughs> on that journey with me, not only because we're very close, but also because my mom is white. And a lot of the places that she grew up, especially when she was, the time that she was growing up in, were predominantly white. Mm-hmm. Um, I have never seen my mom as a racist person, and I don't think that she is at all. But I think she, like, you know, is not always hyper aware of what other people have gone through. And I kind of have slowly been explaining concepts like white feminism to her mm-hmm. and Karen culture. And I feel like she tries really hard because she doesn't want to be a Karen, number one, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I think just the realization of you have more privilege than other people do is a very hard pill for people to swallow, and it's also the idea of white feminism is also, I, from what I've seen, can be very hard for white women to deal with because like we had said earlier, the history classes and things that we're taught about when we're younger, they don't talk about the famous five and how they were, you know, supporters of uh, eugenics and things like... There's statues of them in front of this, well, what's currently the Senate right now. And so, I mean, I lived in Ottawa for the last five years and you can't walk past towards Parliament or towards Byward Market and the mall without seeing those huge statues. Mm -hmm. They're in the center of what, like, main capital downtown Ottawa is. Yeah, so I think if we want to maybe eradicate Karen culture, there needs to be so much learning and unlearning. And I kind of had a um, experience, I guess I would call her Karen, where I had (laughs) gone to visit my mom and someone who works in the building next to her they'd known each other for years. Um, We were all standing outside. She came over, said hi to my mom, and she was talking about her husband and um, his job and that his job was being taken by this effing packy, is were her words. And I was absolutely horrified, obviously. And my mom was absolutely horrified. And I've seen you know, like my family experience moments of racism. I've had, I've heard conversations because I'm very white passing. And for some reason, people feel comfortable, like when they don't know me to Mm -hmm. say things like that in front of me, as if, because I look white, I'm going to be okay with you being (laughs) racist. Um, anyway, so I feel like my whole point in all of this was, I feel like Karen culture 
is such a big part of, yeah, feeling like you have that privilege and feeling like something's being taken from you almost. And you need to teach people their place in society. And then once they're kind of called out on that, we see a lot of um, kind of playing the victim. Absolutely. I think that's such an important thing to discuss. Yeah. And this is something that we see, you know, Karen's do it very well. Um, So my question for you would be, in what ways do you think the weaponization of you know, the women as victims stereotype has played into the ways that Karens react. Well, I'll address it, I guess, in a broader sense, not even specifically to women or white women. There was, there's this quote, and I wish I could remember who or where I saw it. It might be like, you know, one of those Instagram memes Mm -hmm. that you see now or Instagram quotes that you see now. Um, it, it, It said that, you know, when you have had power and privilege for so long, equality can start to feel like oppression. Mm-hmm. Because you are so used to having all the space to yourself that now, you know, in this world where there are people of all diverse backgrounds who are trying to take up space, it suddenly feels for you when you have had all of that space to yourself feels like it's lessening you know it feels like you are losing grasp of all the things that you want or all the space that you had before and so there is often this misconception that yeah that equality means less space for you Mm -hmm. and so I feel like that's what's happening to a lot of white people not just women specifically but all you know all white folks who for so long for generations have had a monopoly on everything, you know, uh, leadership positions across all industries, mainstream media coverage, like absolutely everything, it has been dominated by white folks. And suddenly there are people across all intersections who want a piece of this pie and who want to take up space, rightfully so. And that can feel incredibly jarring for them, not realizing that there is enough space for all of us, you know, and I think that's what's really important to remember because, you know, I feel that way in a lot of POC communities as well. We are so, you know, it it takes on a different, and I'm taking this question in maybe a different direction, but, you know, it, it takes on a different form for POC or Black and Indigenous communities where, because we are so used to a space of scarcity or you know, we have this mentality of scarcity that we feel like if we make it to the top, if we get into a leadership position, we need to be the only ones because Mm -hmm. if anyone is, you know, reaching the same levels, oh my gosh, they're going to overthrow us or we're not going to have that space anymore. There's like this mentality of scarcity that again, takes on different forms for racialized communities versus white folks, very, very different gradients. But I still think there is that that, you know, that idea of scarcity, that mentality of scarcity, it's actually true for POC folks, for racialized communities, not, not so true for white folks, but they do feel that still in a different way. And so, yeah, I just feel like we need to understand the fact that there is room for all of us, that we, you know, that Equality does not mean anyone else's oppression. It means equality. I don't know how, how simpler, you know, how we can 
simplify that for folks, but that's something that I have been thinking about a lot is that, yeah, that, that, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I think that reminds me of uh, something else I, I saw on Instagram, which was um, if you think wearing a mask is oppression, then like you haven't experienced oppression. And I think of it that the exact same way where it's like, you don't know what it's like to not have or to not be constantly given naturally through the way society has been constructed. But the second someone, like for example, in a line at Walmart, like you experienced recently, Yasmin, the line at Walmart, a person's trying to go ahead in line, there's someone in front of them, then like you feel you've been used to so much entitlement that you can just go ahead and you can break the rules and everything will be okay. That if someone, aka you in the situation, Yasmin, was hey, sorry, it was saying like, hey, sorry, um, there's other people in the line in front of you. You totally don't understand how to act because you're like, oh my God, this person is yelling at me or this person is telling me off. They're my oppressor. They're being oppressive towards me when in reality it's, no, actually you have so much entitlement in your life that the idea, that, and like you're playing the victim, mm -hmm. the idea that, you know, this is what equality is, is everyone like lines work in the ways of who comes first. And that's the reality of things. Yeah. And I think what, like when we talk about, you know, white privilege and then white fragility, which I think is what we're seeing when we mm -hmm. see these types of reactions, it's like, in order to recognize that we need equality, you have to recognize that we have not had yeah. equality. Things have not been equal for other people. And I think that's where the kind of defensive mentality comes mm -hmm. in and then that's when we see the white fragility because you can no longer live peacefully in your bubble <laughs> of white privilege now people are kind of calling you out for it um and it can be very hard for people to hear but yeah, yeah that's that's the reality of things that's and things are gonna change the and, way that it is yep yeah. um I also want to talk about like the popularization, like we keep citing like Karen memes and Karen culture and all of this. And I, sometimes I pause with these things because in order for them to be popularized into things like memes, they need to be oversimplified, which is also why our discussion right now is so interweaving with so many mm -hmm. other things. Do you feel like this idea, like this mass popularization of Karen culture has help to expose a lot of the realities that racialized people experience on their daily basis? Or do you think the simplification of Karen culture has hindered that kind of advocacy? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, while you were speaking earlier about, you know, um, white folks who are complaining or feeling like they're being oppressed um, wearing a mask, I was thinking about how one of the dangerous things or one of the scary things that I've seen is just how much this language around social justice and anti-oppression is being co-opted by white people without any understanding of what these words actually mean or like the power dynamics that go behind it, you know? And so that's been something that's really scary to me and related to that, yeah, like this Karen culture, we see so many, like there are dedicated Instagram accounts to it, you know? And it's many things at once, you know, again, like there's no simplified answer to this question. On one hand, it has exposed just how rampant this behavior is by white women and white folks in general. And so 
in one sense, that's great. I mean, racialized people have known that forever. This is not news to us, but I guess white folks need, uh, need video evidence for that. And so cool, at least that's happening. But at the same time, as someone who has experienced this as a woman of color, who is not surprised by any of this, I'm constantly seeing these videos and I don't need to see these videos to understand that they're happening, you know, and it feels like re-traumatizing for a lot of racialized folks, you know, and these are, you know, we see it with the murders of black people all across America, where we need to see these videos over and over and over again to feel anything, which is ludicrous and absolutely, it's just absurd, you know? And again, it's re-traumatizing for a lot of black folks who experience this as a daily reality, something that they don't need any proof, quote unquote, proof for. So on one hand, like that's something that I think these Instagram accounts or the popularity of these Karen videos and memes is also dangerous in that way. And so, yeah, I don't have an easy answer. I think it is all of these things at once. Um, I wish that we didn't need video evidence. You know, I, I wish we didn't need video evidence to, to know that this is happening or to understand or to believe racialized communities when they say they experience this. And I don't know, it's on, on some level, it's almost become a joke, you know, um, oh. there's another Karen and, there's almost a levity to it, I feel, that it's taken on, which when you have been in that position and have experienced it yourself, it's not funny, you know? Like, we make a joke of it now that like, oh my gosh, you're being a Karen, all of these things, but it's not really funny. And so, yeah, that's another complicated part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. We do make a joke of it almost as a way to de- I feel like I joke about it as a way to kind of deal with it. Otherwise, I'll cry, but- Yeah, it's a lot of desensitization. Yeah. You have to force yourself to be desensitized. I think the only, I would say the only good thing maybe about all the social media hype regarding Karen culture is that, I mean, I think it's awful that people of color who have had these experiences have to continually see these videos I would say the positive would be, you know, when we were talking about that woman earlier um, in Central Park who called the cops mm-hmm. on the African-American man, um, she was, a, like, she was charged, was she not? I think she, she no. Was, she had lost her job yeah, as well. She like, faced I, I feel like she did have to face consequences. So on the one hand, that for me makes it feel I'm like, finally, people mm-hmm. are having to face consequences for these things that they're doing, that they've been doing for so long. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, yeah, it's like a double-edged sword. Yeah. It's I, at the expense of yeah. our safety. I wanted to just jump in on that as well, where, again, I feel complicated feelings about this <laughs> and the consequences that people face. I do absolutely think there should be um, consequences faced. You know, in my particular encounter, the woman who confronted me or who racially harassed me is a teacher. And I 100% think that there are consequences that need to be had for people who are, especially in a leadership position, you know, this woman is in front of youth, you know, and, and we're in Toronto, lots of racialized youth, and she's 
probably creating an environment that is unsafe and toxic for these children. And that's really scary to me. But, you know, I posted this video. I, I don't know if I mentioned that earlier, but I posted this video of my encounter. I did manage to capture video for it and also explains why I hate that I had to capture video and that we need video evidence to believe people. But I did capture a video and it went viral, you know, and a lot of media covered it. A lot of folks watched it on my Instagram account, all of these things. And there was just so much hatred towards this one woman. Mm -hmm. And by all means, I don't feel any affinity to her. But <laughs> at the same time, I just thought, you know, this woman is a product of the system that we have all been educated under, you know? And so a part of me also wants to hold space for the fact that, I mean, a, you know, we all need to be accountable to our actions, but at the same time, she is not fully responsible for thinking the way that she does when our mainstream media, when our very education system, books, like all of this stuff that we consume perpetuates or, or condones or even encourages this kind of thinking. And so oftentimes with caring culture, we hone in on the individual, you know, we look at these specific women and we want to find out where Amy Cooper works and make sure she gets fired and all of these things without ever addressing the systemic issue. And I think that's the part that I want to focus on. And that's the part that, you know, in my own work and with this full experience, what, what was really highlighted to me is that this is just one woman, you know, she's one of the many who we are now seeing on videos and on these Instagram accounts, but why are all these women like this? You know, what are the systems that have led to these people? Yeah. We need to address that. And thank you for highlighting that because I think about this a lot in a lot of different things where it's like, and I feel the exact same as you do about, will this person learn? Has this, has this person now, are they going to hide the, you know, the same kind of entitlement and stuff inside and do it in more covert ways or do it behind, like, for example, in classrooms with youth who might not feel comfortable speaking out, exactly. or has this really taught them a lesson? Okay, this I face consequences, social, whatever, professional, whatever, and I'll learn from it. And sometimes I think, actually, most often I think the answer is unfortunately no. They're just going to hide it better. Mm -hmm. And again, like that—that's what we talk about with allyship: is the idea that one in that situation you need someone to be able to be there for you and stand up for you but when we talk about allyship during especially during the trainings i give to organizations is i talk about the ways that allyship can be effectively practiced and a really big part of that is understanding like someone can say something super loaded and loaded with prejudice and you can sit there and you can say you know if my intention is this person needs to just be removed from the room, then there's a certain reaction for that. But if you're in a situation where that person can't be removed from the room, or maybe that person doesn't need to be removed from that room, and by room, I totally mean metaphorical, um, you look at the intention behind the message and you question the intention. So you say, oh, why would you say something like that? You know, if someone talks about the literacy of someone because of their race, you know, or the understanding of a specific language like English because of their race, you say, oh, what would make you think that that person would know English, right? And then suddenly the person understands, oh, I just said something like this. 
But again, going back to all of this being complicated is that that's also complicated. And there's no room for that, you know, in, in these instances of encounters with Karens, there's no area for that. There's no like, you know, so these videos go viral and you're completely right in that I don't think they've learned. There's nobody there who has then spoken to them and tried to show them why this is wrong, you know? Even with Amy Cooper, if she got, you know, there's like now an Amy Cooper law, I believe, um, about like false accusations like that. And there's, you know, and she got fired from her job, but like, did her employer tell her why it was wrong that she did that? There's no net, you know, there's no education that comes after that, which I think is really important is, yeah, because they will continue to harbor these beliefs. And this woman who attacked me probably hates Asian people even more than she did before. And you're right, she's just going to hide it a lot better. And that's so unfortunate because it's such a, could be such a powerful, you know, te teachable moment, but I'm not going to do it. You know, that's a lot of emotional labor. I'm gonna, who's going to do it? Who is there to who's there to educate and who is, who should be responsible for that? Yeah. And I mean, my natural response is allies, but you can't always, I mean, we don't currently live in a society where there are practiced active allies, like non-performative who will actually in that situation, because I think those kind of situations mark the difference between performative allies and active allies. Um, but there's, there's not that many out there. Like a lot of people can say, oh yeah, like if I was in that situation and I saw that happening to Justine, I would stand up for her and I would say this and that. But really, like, if we're going to be honest with one another, that's, you know, especially if there's only strangers around you, that's probably not realistic. And it's not your job, you're right. It's not your job to do the education after you're facing the oppression. Yeah. It's, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. But yeah, I think you're right in that that's where allyship really comes in and something that we do need to practice more. Um, Non-white and white allies alike, you know, mm -hmm. oftentimes it's hard to find the words in that moment. And it's, it's something that we just need to normalize as a conversation and remember that allyship happens not just when it is easy or convenient for us, it's actually during the times when it is the most difficult and the most inconvenient for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and has the most social costs to yeah. it. Yeah, I think our last question, this is a question we ask all of our guests, is would you rather live a week in the past or in the future and why? And you can go as far back in the past and as far forward in the future as long as the future exists. I would pick the future. Okay, how yeah. far ahead? Oh my gosh, beyond my generation. <laughs> I say that because, you know, I'm, you know, a lot of my work is around, is around equity and anti-oppression. And I just know that it will not happen in my lifetime. I am fully aware and okay with that reality that it will take many, many generations for us to achieve true equity and true equality and, you know, and so I, I would be so curious to see what it looks like, maybe, I don't know, two or three generations down the line, what conversations are being had. I think we're making huge progress and huge strides. You know, there's a lot of conversations that I never had growing up, you know, and, and we're having them now. And I'm looking at 
my nephew and my nieces and they are so you know these these words are normal to them now and that's so amazing because it has taken such a long route for me to get there and so i just feel so hopeful and so curious to see what those conversations even look like generations later yeah, yeah. absolutely that would be it would give us hopefully a peace of mind yeah. now if we could do that um thank you so much Justine. yeah thank you so much um for coming and you know for the continued support that you've given all i spared and you know we hope to stay in touch and that you'll stay in touch with us and let us know what you're up to and for our listeners how do they find you on social media yeah so you can learn more about my work with living hyphen at living hyphen.ca or follow us across all socials at at living hyphen or you can follow me personally at Justine Abigail. Awesome. Thank awesome. you so much again. It's always so nice to talk to you and hear your insights. Um, and for everyone looking for Ally Squared, follow us at Ally2Squared on all social media or visit www.allysquared.ca. And thank you so much for listening. Yeah, our episodes occur bi-weekly on Sundays and the next episode we'll be talking about the right to financial security with a very special guest. Yeah, it's it's actually I say this every single time about how special our guests are and they're always so special. <laughs> this is a human being who I think I'm I'm teasering this. Yeah, you are. I think this is a human being who I look up to because of their strength and tenacity and they're a member of parliament so that's always super cool and i think um they have a lot to say about this topic and i think it's important for us to learn about it so thank you so much everyone have a great 2021 before we talk to you next yes thank you bye